Hello, and welcome to Shakespeare, the roundtable discussion podcast where we talk about Shakespeare. My name is Chase, your mostly quiet producer. Today, we continue to talk about Timon of Athens. Make sure to check us out at our new home at shakespearepod.com. Uh, as uh, complete listeners will know, we have joined a few other podcasts to create Ghostlight Media, a podcast network centered around theater and gaming. However, that happened after we recorded this episode, so we'll be talking a bit more about that in depth around next time. Uh, but for now, on with the show. No, I've, heard, I've heard the name. I don't know if I've read any of hers. But she also did, like, this... Uh, His Majesty's Dragons is the first book in a series. Actually, I think that's the one that I... I might have read that one. That, uh, at Jesse Coza's recommendation. Yeah, Jesse Coza's like, you should read this, you should read this. And I kept putting it off and putting it off. He's like, no, come on, it's Napoleon, but with dragons. Yeah. Like, no, I, I don't want to read Napoleon with dragons. But I did, I did read that. But because these two other books were so incredible... Now we've got to, and Chris already bought it because just Koza told him to. So many books to read, so little time. I hear that in my soul. I uh, embody that. Several years ago, my dad got a uh, an Airbnb up in Michigan, and this like it was like on Torch Lake up there, and it had this little room made entirely out of cedar. That was just a little sunroom off to the side of it, and I did the most reading in that one week that I've probably done in probably the span of multiple months over the past couple of years. I want to go back to that specific place so that I can sit in that room, leave my phone and every other electronic device I have in other rooms so I could just get through all of the books that I have been accumulating over the sometimes past couple of years. You, sometimes yeah. you find the perfect place to read saying, and you just... After you left that room, did you find it hard to get back into reading? Yeah, I did. Absolutely. There's, like, when we have moved houses, I've always had a, there's always a reading spot mm-hmm. that I like to read in every house. Sometimes it's my bed. Sometimes it's, like, this one particular chair that is near a window for the rain, because I love that. Yep. Um, at the house we owned here in Bowling Green, it was the chair right by the bay window. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. perfect for reading. It was yeah. great. Perfect light, perfect noise, everything. I don't have a perfect reading spot in this house. Yeah, I and it might be because there's two small children that won't let me read a book. I mean, that's certainly probable. I would go as far as to say, but yeah, and it also coincided with me finishing um, either uh, one of the King Killer Chronicle books, either the first or the second one. I forget which one I read while I was up there, but like it, you know, a combination of book hangover. Plus, leaving the perfect reading spot ever. It's hard to get back into it. So, I read all of The Lord of the Rings in one of my favorite weird reading spots. Okay. For one winter mm-hmm. at Lowe's, I was the cashier at the outdoor lawn and garden. Yeah, yeah. So, during the winter, I was selling the Christmas trees. Right. So, I would come in at like 10 to 7. Mm-hmm. And I would just sell Christmas trees all day. With this little, in this side, this little, like, box yeah. that they built for me with a little heater. Mm-hmm. And I just sat there and read the entirety of The Lord of the Rings in one, like, one selling season. Okay. And it was surreal. Because I killed, like, I finished off Return of the King in a day. It's a short book anyway. So you can read it in an eight-hour shift. But sure. I have this weird, like, memory, like, Lord of the Rings when I read it again, because I've read it several times. It's always cold, and it always smells vaguely of plastic now. 
I read through most of John Green's books. Is this when you started dating Cassie? It was actually just after I started dating Cassie. Huh. huh funny. I, I, I didn't read any John Green until I met Cassie. Did yeah, you know funny, funny that. <laughs> but I got, but I Who the fuck's John Green? How do you know Cassie and you haven't read any John Green? <laughs> Looking, but, John Green wrote Looking for Alaska, which is the one that I would recommend to you. Yeah, it's very, very good. Um, Paper Towns is a very good companion to that. Abundance of Catherine's is good and fluffy, but doesn't really have the emotional heart. Um, Turtles All the Way Down, which is his most recent one. I need to read that one, but the spot where I read that was when I was working at the Quality Inn here in Bowling Green, (laughs) where Ryan and I worked together. Uh, I worked um, midnight, I worked, no, 11 p.m. till like 7 7 a.m. Saturdays and Sundays. There's the places that you have read books and remembered them. Mm-hmm. Like, you remember the spot and the feeling yep. and the time. Like, with audiobooks, I can remember, like, certain mm-hmm. drives bring back the words that I was listening to at the time. Same with, like, where I was reading. Like, uh, then there have been crappy books. Like, when Twilight came out, I had to know what the fuck was going on. Why does everybody even give a shit about this? Mm-hmm. So I'm at work at AT&T getting paid to read it on Wattpad on my phone. Tween romance I know. with vampires. It is the Salisbury steak of books. <laughs> it is. Oh. It. I mean, you're right. I mean, you get that banquet meal with the Salisbury steak. You know exactly what you're getting. It's going to be shitty. And you're going to be like, man, that was really satisfying. Kind of reminded me of being homesick when I was a kid. I ate that frozen dinner of a fro- fucking book. Yeah. That... They are the frozen, like, it's a Salisbury steak. It's pretty shitty, and it's been pounded as thin as it can get. There's no depth there, but it's kind of meat, maybe. Probably. It might fill you up. Well, it's at least going to pass the time. At least if you get the Hungry Man version. When I hit the the emotional depth of looking for Alaska, I was working, it was probably like 2 a.m., working at the Quality Inn, teaching... uh, former roommates of mine, Zach Navarre, how to run the front desk because he was taking over uh, third shifts during the week. Uh, and I, I was it. trying to not, like, dude missed in front of Zach Navarre. So, I have a problem with Zach Navarre working the third shift of a hotel. <laughs> Is it because that- he looks like Lurch? <laughs> it's, yeah. He doesn't look it's- like Lurch. He- he was very well cast when we did Doctor Faustus. If he, no, it was it was it was perfect. His physicality, were, his yeah. But there are people who I see come into the Krogers every day, and I've never interacted with them. But based mm-hmm. upon their looks, I have made judgments. There is one of I call course. the Undertaker because he comes like I started there in December, and mm-hmm. so he was always in in the same like very dark charcoal gray trench coat. Very tall, very skinny, looked like he should own a mortuary. Just had that mortuary look mm-hmm. to him. If I had walked into the Victory Inn with Zach. It was Quality Inn. We didn't know that. No, look, Victory Inn had bed bugs. We didn't have bed bugs. Yeah, that's right. All right, so if I had walked into any hotel, motel. In the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, it's <laughs> raining outside, and the front desk clerk is Zach Navarre, I would have expected him to go, Excellent, we've had your room prepared. <laughs> to be fair, Magnafar might have done that because he would have thought it was very funny. It's true. He knows Either that or he was riffraff from Rocky Horror. Also, like, quality in. Side, point, side point, also one of the best, like, 
like D and D art peers I've ever played with. Like, don't don't I love Zach Navar. He's yeah. a great guy. Always enjoyed his company. He always throws me off with the things that he says. I loved uh, doing improv with him on like the lawn in front of the union because it was always fucking weird. Yeah. Just out there, bizarre. I love great men. You never know what you're gonna get. No. Uh, but man, at one point in time, he's almost, creepy like, fucking looking. We, we had a lot of people that we knew worked at the Quality Inn. Yeah, at different stages. Rachel worked there. Actually, Jason. for for roughly nineteen like nineteen years ago, Stewie worked there. Yeah, a long time ago. Stab, stab, make stab, stab. That he would, was he would write. He or would, was that the Nights End days? No, that was Victory. I thought that was Victory. No, Victory is down the road. Yep. Victory right. used to be the Holly Lodge. It was the one with the nineteenth hole. That was that's the other one. He worked the other one. Okay, that's the victory. So I remember him working there and going to visit him at night. Because mm-hmm. I thought that was the one AJ worked at too. Was no. I right no. there? No, AJ and I worked at the same one that Chase worked at, that Rachel worked at, that Josh Smith worked at. Yeah, he was my maintenance, that's uh, right. my maintenance assistant. He worked Stewie, the PMs in the maintenance. You used to go with me. We would do so. Stewie, when he worked the front desk and third shifts, would let us come in and do our laundry. In the industrial laundry machines, I I had never even considered doing that. You lived too that. far away from the quality. I, I did not live too far away for free laundry. Oh, we somebody like we would pile it all into someone's car and we'd go over there, and it always smelled like bleach when you got it back because it mm-hmm. smelled like the detergent yeah. that they used as well. But we would stay like it would take three or four hours to get everybody's laundry done. But I mean. You could do three everyone's laundry. Yeah, in one big load, and then you'd sit there going. <laughs> it took longer to sort it. Whose undies are these? <laughs> Why are we so close? <laughs> you gotta get your hand off my skin. This is easily the weirdest intro we've had. I didn't realize you were recording. Oh, I oh, I've been recording for ten minutes. Uh, this is probably way more interesting than that, t- Tim in a bath. <laughs> that, well, that group of friends was... Way closer. Way too close. Than it yeah, this been. is yeah. This intro is for the people that like to hear our banter, and you're welcome. And for everyone else, we are kind of sorry. Not n- look not if really. they're listening to Shakespeare. Just they're listening for our banter because that's really the entire Come find podcast. Brian and I in forty years when we're in a nursing home or something. It'll be the same fucking stories. Mm-hmm. We've already decided that this is what's happening to us when we get old. We'll tell the same six stories over and over again and keep wondering why nobody's laughing at us because we're funny. We're funny. We're hilarious. We're fucking hilarious. The one thing I hilarious. Can, one thing I can guarantee about the 19 years of our friendship is that we're hugely the funniest people in the room. Generally speaking. Yeah. Especially when we're here with these two. Oh. Um, <laughs> I would like As to- the person who uh, does put, put this up places... <laughs> I would tend to disagree. I'm going to disassociate myself from that comment because I'm within smacking distance from both of them. <laughs> well, not from Chase, really, but Cassie can definitely get on. I can throw things. Not well. Well enough. You know who could throw things well? Like bulls of water. And oh, oh, is it time in Athens? <laughs> Tymon of Athens, could he do is that? Is it Tymon to get onto this? It is. Oh, oh. no. No. Um, no. We're done. Dicks. We're done. Good night, everybody. <laughs> I'm not mad. Shortest, shortest episode ever. Oh, speaking of which, 
Shakespeare podcast episode 50. Five zero. I can't believe we've been yeah, doing this. 50 for... spectacular. Is this we... our diamond jubilee? This <laughs> is <laughs> our diamond jubilee. I can't believe we've been doing this for 50 episodes. Yeah, I yeah. can't believe Chase keeps letting us in his house. Do we have 50 let listeners? Let alone Cassie. Um, we will have much better metrics on that information within the next month. Awesome. If we find out it's only 12 people, are we still going to make this? Yeah. yeah. Is it because we like getting together and drinking? It is that. I enjoy it's this. It's also because we will become infinitely more searchable once we are not hosted on the Lionface website anymore and instead have our own SEO that we're working with. I don't know what that means, but I like it. Yay. So I um, decided to look up Timon of Athens on Good Tickle Brain. Just to see what kind of if there was a... before before you do that, who are you? Oh, I I can't go first. You can't. That's not how this works. You know what? We're not gonna we're gonna stop this podcast till you say your name. I go third. I'm Cassie Greenlee, and I go third. I'm Beth Roars. I'm Ryan Halfill, and I went third. Bitches. And I'm Chase Greenlee, and I went fourth, like I always do. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You at least got to go in your normal spot. It's not that peer pressure works, folks. It's that Cassie can't stand a pregnant silence. That's right. Not entirely true. So anyway, you looked Time and of Athens. I looked Time and of Athens up on Good Tickle Brain. We're getting to Good Tickle Brain um, early this time, folks. We are getting to Good Tickle Brain early because I love Good Tickle Brain. And there's not a whole lot here. And there's not, yeah. And uh, there's only one. There, there are technically two comic strips that she's written for Timon of Athens. One of them is about why she doesn't write comic strips for Timon of Athens. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, there's a lot of material here with arc blades and ape manas. And the other manas. one is the, is the three panel Shakespeare for Timon, mm-hmm. which is Timon is generous and gives money to his friends. Timon loses all his friend, his money. His friends abandon him. Timon finds more money, carves his epitaph, and dies. Um, but the other thing that I found, and I, I need to buy this for our house and hang it in this place where we record, it is the which Shakespeare play should you see flowchart <laughs> that she has made. And I'm just going to share with you the path to Timon of Athens. You start with the question, what do you want to do? This option is cry. Uh, what is your opinion on revenge? The answer is, it's the best. And then, how do you like your death count? And very low, I'm squeamish. Leads you to Timon of Athens. That's fucking very low. I'm squeamish. That's fucking beautiful, though. You know what? And I just, I need. We need to have this poster. This is. It's this been room. a really long time since we've had a play where no one died, except for uh, the titular character. No, 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 except no, no. maybe. Hang on, three people died. Oh, that's true. Because you've got the rando dude that the the rando the rando murder, and then you have the servant who murdered the random dude who gets executed. Yeah, and then and then Timon, Timon of Athens, Timon of Athens, who may or may not be dead according to Chase, or may not be dead, may not be dead. Well, we have a theory about that that Cassie came up with. Yes, all right, ties into so. This play. Uh-huh. Why? For so many things. First why of all... Why Time and of Athens? Why? Because sometimes you are told to have a new play for Friday, and it's Monday. No, I actually, I prefer 
So you're the saying that this is a, I got drunk all weekend. No, this is this is a this is yeah okay. So Chase's theory: drunken bender mm-hmm. leads to procrastinated uh, attempt hack job at a play. So this is what is turned in by that college student who goes, "I do my best work at three a.m. before the papers due." Exactly. I wrote my best papers at three a.m. before the paper was due. It makes sense as to why you identify so much with him on the mountain. I am him on the mountain. On your oh my best days, ser- my, him on the mountain. My sermon on the mountain involves chucking rocks and gold, though, motherfuckers. If you had to pick a political figure most liked Mona of Athens today, who would it be? And why is it not Bernie Sanders? <laughs> no, the answer is Bernie Sanders. I was going to say, I think yeah. it is Bernie Sanders. <laughs> So generous, and then becomes misanthropic because of fucking being taken advantage. You won't let me give away my money. Take it. I'll throw it at you, fuckers. Like this. So I'm trying to like pull out themes and um, like thought processes and things to really dig in deep. And I mean, there yes, there is the not so subtle theme of um, you should repay generosity or you're an asshole. I didn't get that at all. No, no. Hmm. Was that overt? It might have been very subtle. You might have to read really between the... Shut the fuck up, Cassie. Yeah, if you didn't get hit in the head with the brick, that was the theme of it's this play. It's because you ducked because you were distracted by the fact that Archiblades doesn't need to be in this play. She was distracted by the gold that was on the ground that Tyman threw. Trying to find some roots to eat, but there's only gold. This All he finds is this goddamn potato gold. I need to go... So somewhere, that's, down that's, in, that's somewhere, my theme of time in Athens. Somewhere down in Athens, there is a man who doesn't trust banks, who has been hiding all of his gold in this backwater cave, where he expected no one to ever go. He even posted signs: "Here, there be dragons. Go no further. Instant death upon you." Um, time I can't read. Yeah, apparently. Well, he sure as hell can't read people. <laughs> That's for sure. I think and so there's some guy down in Athens who's like, my great, my retirement plan no, no, no. is up in that cave. I can do this. And it's all gone now. All right. Antigonus. Okay. <laughs> all right. Antigonus. We're delving deep. <laughs> there was too much gold to leave it all with the rich baby. So he buried a bunch of it under a tree. So it becomes magic. Root gold. It's magic baby gold. <laughs> it's magic root right. baby gold. All right, not everything comes back to Winter's Tale. Most things. But I'm willing everything. to go for this. I'm willing yeah. to go for this. And then Iago also, so, not Iago. No, Aaron. So Aaron also, also happened to plant some tree. gold under a tree near this cave. And then all of a sudden, Antiphilus of Syracuse shows up. Syracuse, and oh my Indiana. Gosh, here's yes. a thousand ducats. How many ducats? <laughs> Several duck hats. Several duck hats. Oh my! You can connect anything to anything. So speaking of speaking of how you know, because there's a, lot, there's a lot of critics of this play, including me. There's a lot of critics of this play. <laughs> you know who was not a critic of this play? Who? Herman Melville. That makes sense to me. Herman Melville loved this shit. <laughs> so Herman Melville really enjoyed. Um, a staunch black and white turn. So, and having characters who are all or nothing. 
Well, Ahab is all or nothing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Ishmael is kind of all or nothing. So is the whale. So is the whale. Um, not Ishmael. Ishmael's not all or nothing. It's, it's kind of all or nothing. Yeah. He's right. he's very. All right, Queequeg. <laughs> Did you mean Pequod? No, Queequeg. Okay, because that's the boat. Pequod's the boat. What do we name Pequod? Never mind. Isn't it? I think we had a hamster named Pequod in, high, in college. So yeah. So Herman Herman Melville wrote in an 1850 review, Hawthorne and his mosses. The Shakespeare is not a mere man of Richard the Third humps and Macbeth daggers, but rather it is those deep, far away things in him, those occasional flashings forth of the intuitive truth in him, those short, quick probings at the very axis of reality. These are the things that make Shakespeare Shakespeare. Through the mouths of the dark characters of Hamlet, Timon, Lear, and Iago. That is a group to put Timon in with. So, Melville is... He craftily says or sometimes insinuates the things which we feel to be so terrifically true. That it were all but madness for any good man in this proper character to utter or even hint of them. So... It is shit like this that Melville writes that makes me angry when he's put in with the Knickerbocker writers. Because the Knickerbocker writers are coming off of transcendentalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so are coming off of this like super staunch do it for yourself and moving through into like pull it up by your bootstraps, rags to riches stories, which is close to the same thing, but there's always the fantastic in there. Melville is a Fucking dark and depressing dude. He doesn't belong with Irvin Welsh and um, Nathaniel Hawthorne, who are, yes, depressing, but not quite as dark as that. I mean, Hawthorne's, Hawthorne's pretty depressing. I mean, The Scarlet Letter is pretty depressing, but there's tons of other... I mean, he's written a lot of other stuff. But yeah, uh, since 1590... Uh, timonist has been used as a term to refer to lonely misanthropes. <laughs> I need to start doing that. Because yeah, and, and so even, I've been calling him a unibomber and, for and, years. And, and, right, I've been going with neckbeards. Neckbeard, I, I went in unibomber. And 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 uh, Melville used the term in a, one of his novels, Timonism. So, yes, Herman Melville, big fan. Time of Athens. Puts him right up there with Iago and Lear and Hamlet. Yeah, that's a, that's All right. a trifecta to drop yeah. time in, in the middle of. Also, I'm not really going off of... I I don't know about a lot of you on who's read Moby Dick. I've read it. I've read it. But it's like quick bits of action mixed into the most boring bullshit Ever. Which well, is why I haven't read it. Unless you really... Just cut out, like... Like, you can read the first quarter. Cut the spine. Read the last quarter. Again, cutting the spine. Put it together, make a great book. Maybe 200 pages. Mm-hmm. Just the middle section. Unless you're really interested in how to start a whaling business. So, another reason that people like this play, apparently... Is because of Timon's asceticism. So the fact that he's never referenced drinking uh, wine or eating meat and things like that. That he only drinks water and eats roots. Huh, I hate that. <laughs> but there are certain, uh, certain people that view that as a, a positive 
about the play, which is I think is very strange. Things I don't typically like give people props for are only eating root vegetables and drinking water. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I, there I are some people that are very into there asceticism. Are, yeah, there are well, so he's there are themes of stoicism in here. There's a lot of okay, so Timon of Athens is apparently based on Timon the philosopher. Yes. Just like Arc Blades is based off of uh, a Arc, Greek politician. Arc yeah. Uh, he was a general. Uh, politician, general. Same, you know, I mean, same thing. Same thing in Greece. So there are elements of stoicism in here. There's elements of nihilism in here. There's elements of... And misanthropy would have been nihilism at, the, at yeah. that time. Yeah. Um, there's elements of lots of of different philosophies banding about here. So if you wanted to try to delve to a deeper level on this fucking shit show of a play, you could show it as a man who has made a journey through maybe two philosophies. <laughs> he really is not a lot of growth there. But we see um, Epimantus gives us it. Uh, which does bring me to one of my pins. Thank you, Cassie. Your finger pointing to my pin is always the best. Had character growth? How do we character growth? How do we character growth? How do we character growth? Uh, not through this play. So, and many... Here's the thing. We've, and we talked about the character. Like, I can understand the path this character is taking. I can see... And Shakespeare is usually so good at giving us a nice little arc to see even in villains where... There's just like a nice rise or a fall or even a coming back home for a character that goes off the path, that kind of thing, some sort of redemption. And I don't think that Timon has done anything terrible that he needs redeemed for. No, but but there's here's the thing. If you look at Timon where he starts in the story and you look at him where he ends in the story and somebody gave me a rough synopsis of how he gets there. Like, super generous at the beginning... He ends the play living in the woods for swearing all human contact. And what happens in the middle is that he has all these debts and his friends betray him and won't pay him back. I can go, okay, seems a little extreme, but I do see the path that we took to get there. But it's like Shakespeare forgot to build the staircase. Yeah. That takes us there. And so you're walking along up here expecting there to be a staircase to take you to the bottom, and then you just trip and fall down two flights, like, straight to the bottom. The, he, he didn't put in a staircase. There's a manhole with a ladder, and if you know to climb down it, you might be okay. There are four scenes that are written that could have just been that transition. There are four scenes where the servant is going to each of these people, Asking them for the money and the money being denied, or the strangers are on the street talking right. about it. And we at any see point in time, we kind just, of. But each time the servant comes back, he goes, "Don't worry, there's someone. Someone will help me." There, there's nothing. It's just he's at A, and then yeah. oh, unless look, you we like, the unless you kind of stage it as like a complete and total mental breakdown. Also, there's a line in the. Uh, Wikipedia article about authorship um, that cracks me up a bit. 
Um, some Shakespeare scholar believed Shakespeare began this play but abandoned it due to a mental breakdown, never returning to finish it. The, sh- the Shakespeare had a mental break. <laughs> Shakespeare had a mental break. Could not finish it. writing Timon of Athens. And so Middleton, what, picked it up and finished it for him? Maybe. Uh, or somebody else or just Or this particular scholar well, there, it was just put in the first folio unfinished. Like, that, what we have is not... It's the idea of what he wanted, but it's not... Well, some of those scenes are so short, there's no The ending is just like... Oh, and he's dead. It's like you get to the end, and you turn the doorknob to open the door to read the next, you know, journey on to the end, and it's just a brick wall. Yeah. It's like, oh, we're we're finished. It's a brick wall that somebody has graffitied end onto. (laughs) Oh, we're done. Yeah, bow now. This guy who is like, I'm gonna kill everybody in Athens... Reads this eulogy from Timon and is like, oh, well, I guess I can't kill Athens now. Yeah. And then that's, hey, then we're finished. Hey, he wrote this play and we should put it up real quick. Uh, how do we end it? Just, um, say sorry. Just walk and... off stage? Yeah. Try walking off stage. I was never good at endings. <laughs> oh, it's just terrible. Just, fuck. You know who else was apparently a fan? Hmm. Karl Marx. Karl Marx. I can see that. Karl Marx uses quotes, uh, passages from Timon of Athens during one of his uh, uh, economic and philosophical manuscripts of 1844 to describe or to shed light on the the amoral nature of money. So yeah, yeah, that's that's dance. The amoral power of money almost reads to me more like an allegory. Yes, Mm. like. Because it's so rooted in extremes. Like, every character is so rooted in extremes. And that, to me, feels very much like, you know, Pilgrim's Progress, and you have every man, and you have <laughs> um, all that that kind of approach to storytelling where everything is very black and white, and very much like this character is this characteristic. And they're not meant to be, like, have depth and have growth. No, they're supposed to be just an archetype that everybody would know as soon as you picked it up. Yeah. And oh. this, to me, kind of reads that way. Even I mean, in the beginning. Like I when... hate the everyman place. No, I, I know. But even in the beginning when Plus, we first... Plus, I don't look at them as everyman. It's the, it, the archetypes and tropes are important. Ar- no, archetypes it's... and tropes are important. However, the everyman plays, where everyman is the same character no matter what, yeah, but that's not this, though. No, I no. don't think that's this. I don't think Timon is an everyman by any stretch of the no, imagination. No, he, but he definitely does fit. You know, yeah, like, uh, there are tropes and, like or archetypes like would be used for Commedia that yeah. he would fall into. And, but even at the very beginning, like, he's a, like, like he doesn't start out as Pulcinella. That would be Eight Mantis. But by the end, he might be Pulcinella. <laughs> but at the beginning, he's he's still this kind of stereotypical archetype of I'm so generous, nothing phases me. Um, and then I am so disillusioned that everything is terrible. Yeah. It's two sides of the coin. Like, they're opposites yeah. of the same thing. But the growth I, from point A to point B is not written into the script. It doesn't exist. Oh, gosh. It's just... Nope, it's which, just which, all of a sudden... Which does mean we get that very funny... Not supposed to be funny. This is one of those movies that you watch that you crack up at. Because that banquet scene is the funniest fucking thing Shakespeare's ever It's a 13-year-old girl throwing a fit. 
So oh no, yeah, if I was to direct this like in film, that shit would be hilarious. It'd be over the top. It would be um Oh fuck, what's that? Barbecue sauce? No. That weird uh oh, I can't think of it, so I guess it's not important. Yep. But as I've been one of the It'd be like a fucking Terry Gilliam movie is what it would be. Don't you sully my Terry Gilliam's uh, name. I will. I will sully. I will sully all I want to. We're done. But one of the genius. one of the jokes that came out of me directing Romeo and Juliet right now with my with my cast of students um, is that now I'm committed, according to them, to directing every play in Shakespeare's canon, but setting each one on a playground. Cassie, this is a terrible <laughs> idea because Titus Andronicus is going to get real weird. Also, Lear... That shit's going to get wrecked. Lear is going to be that weird loner dude like on top of the playset. But but Howl I was saying really amazing. that this play would I mean, I'd listen to Howl into... delivered by a 10-year-old. <laughs> this play would fit into that idea That's the ten, really That 10-year-old well. is who the CIA needs to pick to go into like Black Ops. <laughs> Like, try to get them a little bit more stable, but, but yeah, that 10-year-old, I wouldn't... Yeah, ten year old this, lost a this play would fit into elementary school recess. Oh, oh yeah, this Very one, yes, well. for sure, you could easily do that. Take a look at your beautiful dinners. It's rocks! Suck a rock, dick one! <laughs> and then he just he goes and climbs through a hole in the chain link fence and lives in just fucking scampers. grubby wilderness on the other no, side. No, it's not even grubby. Like, he goes up in the neighbor's tree house and won't come down. There's a fucking, yeah, the neighbor near the school. I have enough pine cones to throw at all of you. Every time I try to get a sandwich, it's just pine cones because I don't know how to live like this. So and that's some the fucking 10 year old who tried to run away from home and has no survival skills. And he runs. Did you get your kid out the, of my playhouse? He uh, runs sorry. to the yard of the guy who doesn't trust banks and so buries all of his money in the, around the treehouse. Oh my god, he's, he's just throwing dollar bills at the kids on the playground. He's living in Ron Swanson's treehouse. <laughs> it's Ron Swanson's backyard. Oh no. He's <laughs> throwing just fucking chucking, chucking silver dollars at kids. Oh my gosh. Fucking take this, Kennedy, motherfucker! Thank you, I will. <laughs> like, watch out for the Eisenhowers. Those things hurt. Those are heavy but coins. This, this gets into the, the authorship pen that I wrote down. Because it is I, widely believed I, that... I gotta tell you, when you write the word authorship, I get kind of worried that Ryan's gonna flip out. No. No, not on this one. No, because this one is it's very clear. Like, it might not even be just Shakespeare and Middleton. Like, this could have been a collaborative effort between, like, like three or four other dudes to finish a play. Did you ever do Anne stories growing up? Where you'd tell a story until you got to the word and. And, and then, then the next person, person had, had to take over. Up. Yeah. This very much feels like it, it does. Could, like that. Well, and, and this is yet another one of those plays where there are Shakespeare scholars who say this was the last play he wrote. Yeah, I could believe it. Like, th this is another one of those, it's the last play Shakespeare ever wrote. We've had like five of them so far. Mm -hmm. yeah. We've had several that could have been the first play and several that could have been the last But this play. one is, is widely believed by several Shakespeare scholars to be... Possibly the last play. And maybe unfinished. And maybe he died before he finished writing it. Or 
he had a mental breakdown and put it in a hey, shoebox and I can somebody think found of, it later. There are several authors whose last book, last play, last whatever, finished up by someone else is, like, dreadful. Yeah. And they probably would have never wanted it published. Yeah. Thank God they birthed the rest of the manuscripts that they wrote that they meant for no one to ever see. Yeah. So this this is also... Uh, we were talking about this a little bit ahead of time. Um, but this is considered one of the problem plays by a lot of people. There are three plays that are considered Shakespeare's problem plays. Um, and those three, uh, two of which we still have coming up to do on this podcast. One we've already done. So the one we've already done is Troilus and Cressida. Sexy uncle time. We (laughs) Creepy uncle time. We still have to do All's Well That Ends Well and Measure for Measure. They're over there with the comedies. They're not comedies. I thought we'd already done Measure for Measure. No, we did Merchant of Venice, but we have not done Measure for Measure. Hmm. We've also done Much Ado. And we've also done Merry Wives. There's a lot of M plays. There are a lot of M. Mackers. I think it's... we Measure for Measure, we do that as... Lion Face did Measure for Measure, didn't we? No, BG did a few years ago. Is that... Okay. It's been done recently in Bowling Green. But anyway, those are considered the problem plays. And then often there are three other ones that get lumped in with those, and Timon of Athens is one of those. Um, Winter's Tale is one of those. Because it's bizarre. And and uh, Merchant it- of Venice is also considered one of those. So those those six are usually when you're talking about the problem plays of Shakespeare, and one of the things we were talking about is that this the tonal shifts. Yeah. There's a there's you there's like in all of those plays, there's an extreme tonal shift yeah, in the play. Merchant of Venice <laughs> goes from being so light to so deadly to so light again. Butt cheeks, please. <laughs> Butt cheeks, please. <laughs> don't say no. <laughs> don't say no, Cassie. Just don't shed any blood when you take the butt cheek. What are you mad the about? The butt cheek. It's a bloodless butt cheek. I've seen some butts so white, I would believe they didn't have blood in them. And, fu- and funny enough... This is my favorite Edgar Allan Poe story. The bloodless butt <laughs> The cheek. bloodless butt cheek. <laughs> funny enough, the... the <laughs> Cass- my wife did just throw a pen at me. Do you think that's part of Poe's early detective novels? <laughs> yeah. The bloodless butt cheek. The bloodless butt cheek. And murders at the... The rumor. The rumor. It, it was before he got to the Telltale Heart and Cask of Amontillado. <laughs> Little known fact, it is the sequel, however, to The Fall of the House of Ushers. <laughs> Quote, the butt cheek, nevermore. All, all of that incest oh. leads to bloodless butt cheeks. <laughs> Fun, funny enough. Wait, uh, uh, <laughs> Maybe we are the Poe bo- podcast. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the term problem plays, or talking about Shakespeare's problem plays, was coined uh, in a book written in 1896, and it was actually derived from a type of com- uh, a type of play that was popular at the time that the author of that book wrote, and uh, it was mostly because of association with Henrik Ibsen's work. <laughs> that's where that's where. Oh, who am I kidding? I like some of Ibsen's stuff. Of course you do, but you you know. Shakespeare wrote Problem Plays. Because he did Dollhouse, right? I like Dollhouse. Yeah, Ibsen wrote Dollhouse. Um, 
But the situation faced by the protagonist is put forward by the author as a representative instance of a contemporary social problem. That's actually where problem plays come from. Not that they're problems. Much like morality plays, yes. problem plays become, it's because they're from problems. And morality plays are about morals. And also, these are very Some... problematic plays. Yeah. So, we, when we talk about them as problem plays, I always think about it as, there are a lot of problems with those fucking plays. But yeah, the original the original but, meaning behind the term is not that there are a lot of problems, as they are specific to a problem of the protagonist. Merchant of Venice's problem is still around today. Well. Timon of Athens. Still around today. Timon of Athens lives in all of us. This isn't Portlandia. I don't, I've never seen that. Okay. <laughs> the the dream all, of the 90s is alive in Portland. We all want to be Timon of Athens. I don't. When we grow up. I do. I want to live in a cave on the hill and throw gold at No, me. I'd rather give away la- every last dime to my friends if they so need it. So you do want to be Timon of Athens. Yeah, you do want to be Timon of Athens. You just want to be, you want to be young, young, young and impressionable Timon yeah. of Athens. Yeah. Yeah, before like two days later, he's fucking hucking shit I, and gold yeah, at people. I, I fully believe that this entire thing takes, like, this is a romance to me. It takes place in three days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is one of Shakespeare's romances. Yeah. And the romance was between Tymon and the cave all along. It was actually between arc blades and his hookers. Let's <laughs> talk about arc blades. It was between, oh, it was between, no, the romance is between Tymon and Ape Mantis. So, arc blades is the worst MacGuffin maybe ever he is used to pull one plot point if that and that is the end like the only point of him being there is so that he can come back and read the epitaph and have some witty banter about like bring bring the hookers for the venereal diseases and literally anybody could read the epitaph yeah and if they wanted to make some plot conflict by somebody's about to invade Athens there have been lots of people in the history of the world who have tried to invade Athens. So specifically, so. the reason that that arc blades is used is to tie into because the... you're never going to be able to read this play without seeing arc blades. Somebody else is going to talk about the real character's name and you'd be like, "What? Oh, <laughs> arc blades." No, the, but the reason the reason he's used is because of the tie to actual Greek writing. He's actually was a real person that existed and has been satirized Many since times. the time. In fact, there is a webtoon that I have stopped following because it got kind of dumb, which satirized him and his. Uh, he he wanting he, to sleep he, with everything. Yeah, he's actually he shows up as as a, a symbolic personific, personification of of ambition and sexual profligacy. Yeah. So there there is a webtoon like about he's. That's why he shows up with the hookers and everything else. Yeah, so it just... I, I mean... I can see what you are saying, but what I am saying is that if I cut him from the play and just had Ape Mantis take that, like, I could make this into a five-man play like that. Oh, yeah, you could. You just need you need him, you need you need Timon, obviously. Actually, we do this like a waiting for Godot. Yeah. Do we need Timon? Do you need Timon to do this play? You could make Flavius the central character. You could have Timon off stage 
um, the entire time and have, uh, yeah, it would be the tragedy of Flavius. <laughs> yeah, the tragedy of Flavius. And so you just have all of the conversations that he has with the servants. Cassie, it's our next YA novel. <laughs> the tragedy of Flavius. Tragedy of Flavius. No, I was saying Plato, like, Plato. It's going to be the story about the best friend of the super dramatic girl. Yeah. Plato even wrote about arc blades in his symposium. So. Thank you. You know so much about arc blades. I've been looking up a lot about arc blades since we started talking about him. Um, just because he, I actually think that you would find his history, his military history, quite fascinating. Um, so one of the things that I looked up has to do with adaptations. Yes, there's an opera. Yeah, there's a musical too. Did you know that Duke Ellington wrote music? I did. Thank God for Wikipedia. <laughs> did you know that Duke Ellington, Duke Ellington, scored? A fucking rendition for Stratford. For Stratford of Time and of Athens. One of the largest Duke Ellington. One of the largest Shakespeare festivals on this side. As a swinging, like a swinging jazz. There's a fucking swinging jazz soundtrack out there for Time and of Athens. What What do you think the little little beat was for his throne gold bits? I don't know, but I want to hear it. I do too. Um, I Somebody track this down. Chase? I'm, I'm on it right now. So we need to find it. There are not a lot of Did movies. Chase die? There are, but there have been plenty of times it's been put up on stage and stuff like that. Um, not many. It does not, I mean, I, it, took I, a, I, it took them, it took them I'd like 70 to, years to put it on. I'd like to say that there aren't many YA or novelizations of it, but you know what? Probably three quarters of all YA novels are a novelization of this. <laughs> oh, don't be You mad. can buy the original motion picture soundtrack by Duke Ellington for Timon of Athens. How much? Ten bucks. Uh, Twelve bucks. Don't do it. I'm, go- I'm going to. <laughs> I'm buying it. I need this in my life. Ryan is such a Duke Ellington fan, he's even got the LP of the Timon of Athens. Do you mean Timon? Shut up. And then he punches him. Oh, okay. I can play. Will we get into trouble? Uh, I've got it pulled up right here. We can play a very short piece of it. I will splice it in. Like, if you don't think (laughs) the intros and outros of these, this pair of episodes is going to be something about Duke Duke Ellington. Or, please... The opera. There is an opera. Oh, yeah, no, I, I was looking earlier. Don't you worry. Uh, there's also somebody relatively famous who I can't remember which one it is, uh, which individual wrote like a song called Timon of Athens. Or I think my, my, oh, my yeah. oh, I saw that. Yeah. Back in like 2006. Yeah. Vladimir, like, Nab- Vladimir Nabokov has an entire play based around Timon of Athens. Um, or an entire novel, sorry. Um, ben Patton is the name you're looking for yes. for our intro and extra music. Yeah. But yeah, Vlad- uh, look, Vladimir, Vladimir Nabokov has a, has a novel written, that he wrote, Hailfire, that takes its title from a quote from Timon of Athens, and a copy of Timon of Athens features prominently in the plot. And then there's like... Yeah, it's ridiculous that there's so many times that this thing shows up in in popular culture. Charlotte, Bla- you know, Charlotte Bronte, fucking has 
Listen, I feel like we need to create a resurgence. Nope. Because I think a lot of things about this play. Ralph Waldo Emerson. I mean, I think nihilism. So this. Wait. So Ralph, what? Tell me about this Ralph Waldo Emerson. Okay, so Ralph Waldo Emerson. Because transcendentalism, like the. Problem that he alludes, he alludes to time in, in Essay's second series that he wrote in 1844 in an essay entitled Gifts. Um, this giving is flat usurpation, and therefore, when the beneficiary is ungrateful, as all beneficiaries hate all Timons, I rather sympathize with the beneficiary than with the anger of my Lord Timon. So, Emerson, in like, so I love transcendentalism, first of all. I think, well, duh, and/or hello. And or hello, I'm C, because I am. I very much believe in the self sufficiency. Um, I am not self sufficient in any way, but I believe in it. <laughs> I'd like to be. Mm-hmm. Um, he would have seen this play as a beacon of why, why self sufficiency, why the transcendentalism, why you need that as a key component of your life. If you are simply giving and expecting others to give to you in the same manner. You will only ever fail. So I could really see Ralph Waldo Emerson getting behind this. That being said, Walden Pond, Thoreau, not so much. He liked to get a lot of free things. I like Henry David Thoreau. His, like, he wrote that whole book about being alone out on the pond. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful, but his mom came and did the laundry. He was literally, like, he ran off to Walden Pond the same way that Timon ran off to the cave. <laughs> <laughs> he was literally five miles, like, I think he's still in New York City. <laughs> he, he's pretty close to Boston. Yeah, like, he's right outside the city. He goes over to Emerson's house for dinners twice a week. His mom's coming over to do his laundry. Uh, Emerson, however, when he went out into the wood, he made his own nails, he built his own house, he lived off of the land, like, he really did it. And then here comes Thoreau, who's handsome, who's charismatic, who can write really well, spouts off all of the same ideas Emerson had in a more beautiful tone, and lives none of the life. He's so hypocritical. Drives me fucking crazy. There's a French-language production. Oh, good. That one I would At least that one I wouldn't understand. (laughs) <laughs> all right so enough of the adaptations great there are some don't bother so our final pin dead dead all right so, so he can't be the friar so okay so we're gonna start with where i started where i don't think he's dead so i think he came back in read his own eulogy in Groucho Marx glasses, and decided to move back in under a new assumed name. Because that's something you could do, do you think back he wanted, before DNA. Do you think was, he wanted to, like, watch his own funeral? I mean, doesn't See, everybody kind of? these liked me in my death, but they hated me in my life. I hate all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a thing you could do before DNA. Yeah. I could do it now still. I just gotta bleed nowhere. Nobody dead. makes me bleed you my own lose, blood. You have to lose an unfortunate amount of blood in order to convince people that you've been hurt enough to be dead. That's what Gone Girl taught us. I haven't read that book or watched that movie. Mm-hmm. Spoilers. Thanks, Chase. You're it's it's a few years old now. I, I I'm teasing. Also, um, challenge accepted. 
Uh, we all we have our three perma pins. We do have our three perma pins, but I want to talk just a let's little talk, bit. Let's talk. Okay, let's talk about this Jen. pin. So, listen, it's just a little too convenient that he's so frustrated with everybody like showing up to bother him. So either he like dies out of spite, which which I see, wouldn't put past him. I will. See, Shakespeare has had characters die from broken hearts. We've had them die out of anger. We've had them die out of spite. I mean, I will someday. Or, <laughs> yeah, it'll be my spite when I kill you. However you die. Or, he carved his own eulogy. I hope the police are listening to that. He carved his own eulogy. He, like, arranged a bunch of leaves to look like a dead body. And he's just hiding on top of the... <laughs> like, he's not even hiding well. He's just like on top of the cave going, hmm? Like looking over the edge? Yeah. Like, did they find it yet? He's just lying there pretending to be dead with a sign that says, I'm dead. And the soldier who pops in is like, oh man, can't argue with that logic. I believe everything is dead, friends. (laughs) Oh, dicks. Just so everybody will leave him alone. And this is what I choose to believe. And so. I don't know how he fits into the friar in the Shakespeare Cinematic Universe yet, but he's going to. So, at some if, point. if the magic baby hider. Yeah, Antigonus. If Antigonus is the one who hid the money there in the first place, mm-hmm. Antigonus, I believe we decided, was the original friar. No, no Antigonus was killed by a bear. No, I thought we decided that Antigonus didn't get killed by a no. bear. No. 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 Did I decide that Antigonus You did may it? have, in your twisted imagination, decided that, but no, he's definitely eaten by the bear. It's in the stage directions. No, he's he exits, pursued by the bear. No, then there's also the bear is literally gnawing upon him on his arm in the next scene. Yeah, tut 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 tut. <laughs> we went over this when we did the Winter's Tale. All right, you now, may have gotten lost in Magic Baby and <laughs> Statue Woman back to life, but my other baby. favorite friar, uh, Rich Baby. Sorry, is, uh, she's a rich baby and she's gone too far. My other favorite friar. Possibility uh-huh. is still Jacquees. Jacquees. Yeah, Jacquees was our origin story for Jax for uh, for the friar. But this, I don't know, this guy in the woods. Maybe he finds the cache of gold afterwards, All right. and he just. We don't know why Jax is so disillusioned with the world. Maybe when Jacquees he is, is to Mona Mona Athens. There we go. Done. Done. So that's I a slight re- rehabilitation is to become Jacquees. Yeah, like yeah. he wandered around enough to have a love of life and drinking and stuff. Like he figured out that just eating roots and drinking water was stupid. Mm-hmm. And then so he, he gave up his. He so gave he up combined him and gave them time. Mm-hmm. He gave up his ascetic life. Nice way to talk about vodka. Exactly. Potatoes, water, yeah. time. Yep. He gave up his ascetic life and uh, turned into Friar Tuck. Great. Aestheticism. So yeah, I don't think give, give praise to his bounty dead. and glory to his name by learning about beer. But yeah, let's talk about our perma pins. So the agency of women. There's, there's unless you call unless unless you consider two women coming in and fucking slinging insults about fucking venereal diseases to be female agency. No, but it does. Okay, so it points out. That women do have the ability to poison men with their vaginas. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? Oh my gosh. 
Well, I mean, they are, they are two women who are in control of their own bodies. Yes. They don't care. And they make their own choices with their bodies. But. They are literally there to fucking make raunchy pussy jokes. And they are the only women in the play. And they are the only women in the Go play. Out, well, no, because there's Lady Masker. So there's the women he hires to dance. They don't get any lines, though. And there's there are some adaptations of the play that add a daughter to. There's a sequel play. Time with a daughter. There are some that add According a the a fiance. There are there there are adaptations with a fiance or a uh, a a fiance and a mistress and a daughter. I just remember you that we are sleeping on something that is in this play, which is that briefly, Cupid is a character. Ah, uh, shit, you reminded me of that. Uh, briefly, Cupid shows up at Timon's first feast. At the first feast, Cupid yeah. walks in. <laughs> with a bunch of Amazonian warriors. <laughs> yeah, we did kind of just skip over that. Look, it jumps the shark. <laughs> it's like Real it alert, doesn't like, matter at all to the fly. It flies the tank, A-team style. Yeah, it does. It flies the tank, A-team style. Yeah, I, think I know that one. I got that reference. Thank you. Thank you. I don't make many A-Team references. I'm really glad you got that one. In fact, Murdoch's the only character I like in the A-Team. I, well, always, I, I, I was always a B.A. Baracus guy myself. I know. But Murdoch the can fly. The B.A. stands for bad attitude. Murdoch can fly anything. Including a tank. Including a tank. Is he trying to fly the tank? He's not trying. In the, uh, it's a terrible movie. That's a terrible movie. No, I love that movie. It's uh, not. I mean, it's not as good as the show was back in the day. But as all right, far let's as not a, get derailed. Faithful, by... uh, I, look, I will always be derailed by the eighteen. <laughs> so, I once watched Mr. T lift up a car. So we've talked a little bit about adaptations already. Do you have anything to add on the language? I didn't notice anything great. Uh, there is um, one of the characters. Uh, it's, I think it's Ape Mantis. I will, I will say the poet is a little, like, I don't have problems reading Shakespeare. Like, it's not often that I have to stop and read it out loud for it to make sense. But the poet in the very beginning, when he's talking about, like, the Wheel of Fortune and stuff like that. and Yeah. To, he gets so convoluted with the way the poet is talking that it is clear he's trying to show off a little bit. But it is convoluted. I had to stop and read it out loud to make it make sense to me. Which, according to what I was reading earlier today, Shakespeare was the originator of the poet role. Which, if he wrote that for himself, I could absolutely see him. It's like, I want to write something like, I know I can pull this off. I would write this for me. Language-wise, there is um, one thing. Ape Manus speaks in prose. Well, that's because he wouldn't be bothered or sullied with. Well, and because a lot, you know, a, a, a finished version they may have been in verse, but you know, there's there's actually a, there's more there's more characters that speak in prose, which may be an accidental so, thing, but most of those lines are Ape Manus's lines. This play becomes super interesting if you think of it as unfinished. So for him, for for those lines for Ape Manus, it's probably an intentional character trait. You know, like it's probably a choice 
there that eight mana speaks in prose like you were talking about because he couldn't be bothered to speak flowery language. But with the other lines that are in prose still, that's more of an indication of the unfinished. If we read this as an unfinished piece, it's like he third draft, never completed it, didn't get it all the way done, wasn't going to send it to the publisher. It could give you a really interesting indication on how he writes. Because we always see finished like finished product. I'd never read this play before. Mm-hmm. Super yeah. like okay with that. But if I've we, read all of them at least once, but some of them it's been twenty years. I read the William and Mary version of all of them, which is the plain text. But like, if you look at it as like, there's a couple of acts that seem fully developed. Uh, doesn't really break into the fifth act really well. Like, there's not much of it, and it, it's kind of short and over. There's a couple of acts in the center that really, there's no real dialogue. It's really, sh- like, short and choppy. Well, you could almost see how he's writing on, like, an outline, and then he flushes out, he, he flushes, he, out, he flushes, he flushes everything, out, he flushes out, he flushes out. And he writes first in, I mean, he's not writing in verse to start with. He's writing in prose, and then he takes the prose of what he wants to say, and, and then turns it into, it into the verse. So taking a look at it as like a breakdown of how he might have written, then it becomes interesting. No, and I, I definitely agree with that. But it does that, become very is, interesting. But that is, those, that's what we're talking about. Other like, than the hissy fit in the middle, that might be the only. I don't know. I do like. Never mind. I like Act Four. I would like Act Four and the hissy fit. I, I, I. His eulogy is great. I love his eulogy. I love the I love the second feast. That's, that's what I'm referring to yeah, as I'm, yeah. the hissy fit. I'm with I'm with and Cassie on the that. Nobody snaps. Nobody snaps like time in of Athens. That's true. And and then the speech that he gives outside the wall of Athens. Where yeah, where he flips off the town and is like go to go fuck yourselves. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's and fantastic. Twenty steps and mean gets and too tired to home. go further. It's like he, when my kid crawls under the bed because I want to make him walk, brush his teeth. Like that is such a temper tantrum. Yeah, but it's fantastic. And then he commits to the bit a lot. Yeah. He holds his breath. Yeah, Timon does it. He passes out. You're yeah. almost impressed until you realize that you have to brush his teeth to put him in a bed anyway. Manually. How else do you brush teeth? Well, well, no, you have to do yeah, it. Yeah, you have to do it. Your your children has passed out. No, I don't do it for them. I throw them in the pond, and when they finally get their way out of the pond, they can brush their teeth. Oh, okay. That works. I don't have a pond. Yes, no. I do. Oh, well, you do, but I mean, it's not, like, easy to get into the pond. That's why she you throw them in easy. the deck. It's punishment. Well, no, she's it's throwing them in the deck. I, you, look, Michael's getting big enough. I don't think you can huck him from the deck. No, they are also starting to no longer believe when I tell them that I'm going to throw them in the pond. Yeah. Actually, it's, been, it it's been about a year. It's been yeah. A year. Do we have anything else to say? I don't. Oh, do we have, uh, oh, we, we have, we covered adaptations already. We covered agency of women. We talked about language. And I do agree with you about the, the fact that it could be a really interesting view at the skeleton of yeah. the way that Shakespeare wrote. If you Another if, one for the Shakespeare time machine. And yeah. I think it's interesting that there's no skeleton that we see up to moment. There's no body. Nobody, no nobody, doubt. Nobody, nobody like you. Chase is going to hold on to this. Chase I am. is going to hold on to this. He's going to hold on to Timon is not dead. I like that. He's Timon too is spiteful to die. You know, Timon is Jaquees, man. I'm here for that. Either that or it's Timon's body the bear is eating. Mm. 
So, so Antigonus, Antigonus runs off stage. Antigonus lives! Antigonus runs off stage, sees Tymon bitching about something, throws him in front of the bear, and Antigonus escapes. Oh, just made past it. Here. No, you nihilistic motherfucker. Here. He just, all he did was run past Tymon. And Tymon was like, what? A bear? Have you come for money too? Take the money. And the bear's like, what? <laughs> Tymon's, Tymon's fucking hucking. Not money, quarters. but your delicious limbs. Also, I believe, I, I remember now what my argument was. Was that all they had was the arm. He just took the arm, cauterized the wound that his skull. Oh, yeah. And no, yeah, you had this the long, drawn-out fucking there explanation. A, there was a, yeah, there and was a Jedi. And that's where Jedi bears came from. Yes. Yeah, yeah I remember now. Yeah, you're long, you guys are cut it off with a lightsaber. Well, apparently I say dumbass shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I love it. I've known that for 19 years. I hate you. But, yeah, this one is You've odd. hated me for 19 years. I think play is odd. Yeah, it's odd. I'm done with this one. It's weird. Let's only draw upon this for comedic value for the future. I agree. Sounds good. I don't think we ever need to go back to this play to revisit to see if we missed something. By by the way, there is a current film adaptation that was released in 2016. It's what? What? I Timon? Something like that. I Timon. Yeah. I Timon. I Timon. I Pumba. Are you sure it's not about a meerkat? I am. I am certain that it is about this. All right. This Unfortunately, play. now I have to find out if I can watch it. All right, let's wrap this if, up. If we can find out, if you find out that we can watch it, we need to watch. Are you sure it. you weren't Emergency thinking about watch party now? I got a pot of coffee. Are you going. sure you weren't thinking of I Tanya? It's very different. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was released around the same time. Uh, no, I Timon or I Timon was released in 2016. Premiered at the 2017. Hoboken International Film Festival. Shakespeare's forgotten masterpiece of a good man in an evil world. Where it was what? nominated for Best Director and Best Cinematography. I'm sorry, what did you read some that lad, Some lad by the name of Bramwell Noah. His parents fucking hated him. <laughs> Either that or he thought he'd get real creative when it came to getting a sad Bram Bramwell? His real name's Noah Bramwell. His real name's fucking dumb. Appears in this title role and is also responsible for the original adaptation. Oh, he he fucking wrote the adaptation. Of course, he starred in the title role. Oh, and he directed it. (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay, that's a sign of a of a well thought out piece. The film also features a soundtrack based on the musical score of Hexacordum Apollonis by Paco Bell. What did you say? Oh no, he's Johann Paco Bell. For Hexacord of Apollonis. He Cassie got so offended. She got so upset. No, if there there is a classical composer to do the soundtrack for Timon of Athens, it's Taco Bell. I like to think of Johan Taco Bell. He tastes better. Alright, are we done? Yeah, we're done. Oh, yeah, we're We're definitely done. done. We're definitely done. Sorry, I had to bring up the film adaptation. I had to because it's 2016 that there was a film adaptation released. Watch now on Prime Video. It's on Prime? Alright. Oh my god, I'm gonna have to do it. I'm gonna have to. Alright, well, maybe there will be a a special report on... Creature (laughs) Report! Sorry. We need to have have a (laughs) viewing party... You know, have some of your kids over, and we'll make a thing out of it. Seriously, but until then, we should do. That. I have been Chase Greenley. <gasps> you can't go first. He went first. He did it.
the whole world is upside down and backwards now. He said he was Chase Greenlee. I did. I'm Cassie Greenlee and I'm mad about it. I'm Ryan Halfill. And I'm Beth Roars. You went fourth and I went third. And you've been listening to the Shakespeare podcast. And the world didn't explode, but the Shakespeare podcast did. It exploded with delight because we changed some things up. Say good episode night, John 50. Boy. Episode 50. Say good night, John Boy. I will not say good night until I say episode 50 one more time. Good night, John Boy. All right, good night, buddy. John Boy. Did what you want to say good night, buddy, to me? Yeah, <laughs> good night, buddy. That's what I say to my kid. Good night, buddy. Good night, buddy. What, Paul?